It's been a year of expansion and deepening at the On Being Project, and I am so excited to announce the launch of a whole new gathering space and experience at onbeing.org. With the care and creativity of many, we've fashioned a digital home that is newly beautiful and hospitable. It's designed for all the ways we've heard you tell us you use our work, for personal reflection and respite, for conversation in family and community, for teaching and social repair. There are starting points into our 15-year archive of material. There are libraries for browsing or diving deep. The Civil Conversations Project has a robust, integrated presence, and poetry is present along just about every pathway. Please wander in to the new onbeing.org. And once you've had a chance to explore, let us know what you think, what works, what you'd like more of. You can reach us on our social media channels or email us at mail at onbeing.org. We look forward to inhabiting this space with you. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with neuroscientist Richard Davidson. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you like to listen. Thank you so much for being here. I know that you don't want a long introduction, but I do want to say a couple things, and I hope you'll permit me that. And uh, this is going to be highly interactive. So we want you guys to have your thinking caps on. And let's really uh, not only listen and take in, but let's challenge our colleagues on the stage here because they in many ways have been the expert and the pioneers in terms of this important topic of, of kindness, you know, love, civility, the things that we're going to talk about today. And how do we get that into our classrooms so that we can change the current climate in our country and think about the next generation. So let's go ahead and begin with On Being OCDE. And I want to welcome all of you for being here today. And as you heard me say a minute ago, the topic is love, kindness, and education. And we are so fortunate to have uh, Krista here and Richard. I'm delighted because I know, think I know a little bit about them, largely from what I've heard and from what I have read. But um, they are very distinguished guests, and I'm happy that you've taken the time from your busy schedules and, you know, you, you did all the travel commitments to be here today, and thank you for that. And I do want to thank our media people, Greg, Laura, Austin, all of the people that had something, that Ian, you two, had something to do to get this, this stage put up, and, and, and here we go. We hope we can do more of these um, types of uh, interactive uh, experiences with uh, professionals. Um, you know, I just want to say something that reminded me as I was driving down here, the Stephen Covey quote that we are not human beings on a spiritual journey, but spiritual beings on a human journey. And I think we're going to see that uh, manifested today. Um, I want to salute uh, Krista for uh, all of her hard work in this area. Uh, in terms of paving the way regarding podcasting. Uh, I have become a fan of it largely because my sons 
uh, do it. They, 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 they follow the, the world of sports on this. And then Jeff Henneberger has been a spur under my saddle to keep me going in terms of education. But she not only has a degree from Brown University, but an MDiv from Yale, so a Master's of Divinity from Yale School of Theology. Um, and she also, um, you know, is the person that began the On Being Studios, which started all of this work uh, several years ago. And what I love so much about both of them is speaking on topics which are near to my own heart, and that's the matter of faith and science, the integration of faith and science. So once again, we're happy that they are here. She's the recipient of the National Medal of Humanities, which was presented by President Obama in 2013, the Peabody Award, and also the Webby Award. Have you ever heard of that award? That's, you, you, <laughs> that's for excellent service on the Internet, given by the International Academy of Digital Arts Service. Uh, anyway, that's, that's, that's the first time I heard of that award, but I think it's awesome. Um, Dr. Davidson. Uh, uh, Dr. Davidson, I feel like I kind of know you, as I mentioned a minute ago, by what I've heard and by what I have read. Um, but I also know you through the eyes of Dr. James Doty from CCARE, Stanford University, who, who has done much of the same kind of work as, as you have done. And we're, we're hoping that we can start a relationship with you as we have with Jim Doty. Uh, in terms of neuroplasticity and how can we help our students become more resilient. Um, I had a chance to mention your name in Sacramento just a couple of days ago because we're starting a new relationship with Pedro Nogueira and UCLA, and we were talking about what can we do in the area of kindness and well-being for our students, and your name popped up, and we talked a little bit about you. Um, he's a professor of psychology and psychiatry. Um, he runs the Center for Healthy Minds. He started that center. Uh, he holds a PhD from Harvard and has worked closely with Daniel Goleman. Um, I also know that he has, is a friend of the Dalai Lama and has helped in terms of the human brain and the whole process of meditation. We've had the Dalai Lama here in Orange County a couple of times, as you probably know. In fact, we had him here, I guess, a couple of years ago at the Irvine Hotel, and he had a chance to meet with educators to talk about what he felt was the most important thing in all of life, and that was to be kind, especially in our public schools. Um, I also am very happy that you're working with autistic children in terms of neuroscience because that's also a passion of ours. So without any more ado on my side, I do want to salute you. We do have a one billion acts of kindness. I know Jeff probably mentioned that too. We'll talk a little bit more hopefully as we move along. But thank you for being here to the beautiful OC. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, uh, Superintendent Maharis. Can, can you hear me? It was working a minute ago when I was not supposed to be making noise. No? <laughs> Is that, oh, there I am. Okay. All right. Um, and also I want to uh, call out Jeff Hittenberg, Hittenberger, who we've been, I feel like we've been corresponding for five years. Maybe it's been three. But it's been, I was, oh, I just was, I loved the invitation when we first met. Uh, to be here, to be to be in Orange County, to be with educators and uh, administrators of education, and I absolutely uh, am with that equation, Superintendent Mars, that you made between the classroom and the country. These things are connected, saving them in hand in hand. 
Um, and I really, so let me just tell you a little bit. We're going to speak up here for about 45 minutes. We are taping this for, for possible broadcast later on, on being on the podcast and uh, the public radio show. And so we'll speak for about 45 minutes. We'll open it up for questions. I'll give you a heads up about 10 minutes before. I think there are cards on the chairs. And so they'll be collected at that point. Then we'll, and I very much look forward to that piece of it. And I know Dr. Davidson does as well. Um, So we'll then have that conversation with you. um, And then we will come back up to the stage to close out the, the, the formal broadcast taping. And I think, then I think there's a little bit more informal conversation. Um, yeah, so I, I so appreciated and respected the way this invitation was framed and the way you've framed this gathering um, about love, kindness, and education. Strangely, three words we don't often see together, right? It's a little bit countercultural. Um, and there was language in there about restoring the richness and meaning of love and the role that it plays in education. Now, Richard Davidson... Who and we've known each other across the years. We we did a previous interview in 2011, and he goes by Richie, and so I'm going to call him Richie today. Um, it's one of the central people who has helped us begin to see inside our brains and inside the rich interplay uh, between things we previously saw as separate not that long ago: body, mind, spirit, emotion, behavior, genetics. Uh, And of course, this rich interplay has profound implications for education, uh, for public health, um, and I think for for public life, for common life. Uh, Richie has been a leader uh, developing the very young field of neuroscience. I think we forget how recent its insights are. Uh, Really, just since the late 1970s, it's been an identifiable field. And he was one of the people who contributed to really the discovery of the science of neuroplasticity, which I think is one of the most exciting discoveries of my lifetime. Um, this idea that our brains, you know, I think when I grew up and when many of us grew up, you had this idea that our brains stop forming at some point when you're 18 or 21. And it turns out that our brains form and can change across the lifespan, which I think is as wonderful news for somebody in their 50s as in their <laughs> 20s. Um, and, you know, what we practice, we become, and that we can change our brains to our behavior. So we'll, we will get into that. And, and, and Richard Davidson and his brain imaging laboratory in Wisconsin has been one of the places that helped us come to know that for the first time. Um, and in my mind, the science he's involved in is part of uh, a broadened understanding that we uh, can have in this early century of human wholeness. Um, I, I think that we live in, in such a tumultuous time in some ways, um, but one of the realities of this moment is that we are the first generation of our species to actually have the tools and the scientific knowledge to think and act as a species, all evidence to the contrary notwithstanding. <laughs> And to me, this science, and and in fact, this conversation in this room today um, is part of that story of our time that we're all part of. So I'm honored to be with, with, with Richard Davidson and with all of you and to know that we're, we're having a conversation right here today that we have only very recently been equipped to have. 
And I think, um, Richie, I want to ask you, um, just before we start, because I like to ground things in the personal, in personal history, um, if you think about the words love, kindness, and education, um, did, did you have an experience of love and kindness in education? Um, or how would you identify that in your earliest life, in your childhood? Yeah, well, uh, let me just first say before we I answer the question, it's just a delight to be here with you. I've been interviewed by so many people in my life. No one do I enjoy being interviewed more than <laughs> you, Krista, so it's really a pleasure. Um, love, kindness, and education, as you say, have I, I've not heard those words put together before. Uh, and... Uh, it's refreshing, and it's a testament to your visionary um, uh, stance here in Orange County that you have chosen to meld them together. Uh, in my own life, uh, uh, I actually went to a Jewish day school for the first eight years of my life, actually nine, including kindergarten, uh, and um, for the most part, except for, I'd say, one uh, teacher who I remember very distinctly, um, I don't have a sense of love and kindness at all. Uh, 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 and uh, really very much um, uh, foreign to, to love and kindness was my experience. Um, uh, and, you know, one of the things that's made me so passionate about education is my own kids. Um, yeah. uh, I have two kids, one of whom went through school and sort of was Miss Perfect. And uh, if she had a tumultuous adolescence, it lasted maybe 24 hours. And the other made up for it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, uh, uh, and, and fortunately, they're both doing really well now. Uh, but there was a period when it was quite challenging and uh, education for my son was, um, was really difficult. Uh, and it sensitized me to the critical importance of bringing love and kindness mm -hmm. into the classroom uh, in a way that honored uh, the differences and variations among us which is so prevalent when we actually open our eyes and look. And um, I think it's worth spending just a little bit of time um, kind of understanding where we came from on this. Because, you know, until not that long ago, I mean, the 1960s would have been kind of before the prehistory of neuroscience. And it was the heyday of behaviorism. So I feel like in, in, in the sphere of education, we had, a, we had a partial understanding of our sense and of, of how formation happened. And you've said to me once that, you know, the, the environment was emphasized so heavily, there was no attention to the mind, no attention to biology. Like what was going on inside the child was just not that relevant. Um, and then, then there's, a, there's a corollary, I think, in... In fact, the disciplines in society where we studied um, the mind, um, and, uh, and that would be psychology, the field of psychology. So I, 
I, that we had a, that we're working with partial, with a partial understanding and a partial vocabulary. And I wonder if you would tell the story that I've heard you tell before about the first time you met with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and you had this conversation with him about um, the six emotions that modern Western psychology had identified. It's like the six, basically the six places the human goes. Yeah. Uh, well, uh uh, the six emotions that Krista is referring to are uh, six emotions that have been studied in Western psychology that have been identified with distinct facial expressions. The, the emotions are happiness, sadness, anger, fear, disgust, and surprise. Um, those are the, is that what you're referring yeah, to, those yeah, six yeah. emotions? Yeah, So... Uh, um, I mean, what's so remarkable is that in the Dalai Lama's tradition, uh, uh, the emotions which are so important, like kindness and compassion, were not present at all. Um, and uh, one of the things that the Dalai Lama said to me is, why can't you use the same tools of modern neuroscience that you've been using to study these other emotions, particularly fear? and the emotions related to fear, which were so prevalent in yeah, those days. Yeah, because these are mostly negative, right? Fear, anger, disgust, sadness, surprise is kind of neutral, and happiness is kind of a little bit more complicated than that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so it was a wake-up call to me. And, you know, I didn't have a very good answer for him. This was in 1992 when I first met him, and he said... Why can't we use these tools to study kindness and compassion? And it was like, I, I sort of blurted out, well, it's hard. But it was hard when we first began to study fear. And uh, uh, that was a pivotal moment for me. It really was a pivotal moment. And I made a commitment to him on that day in 1992 that we were going to turn our attention to the study of these virtuous qualities. And there's another story which is worth mentioning to sort of put this in historical context because you brought up behaviorism. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I was a graduate student in psychology at Harvard, and um, it was a very interesting time uh, in those days. This was in the 1970s, and B.F. Skinner, the um, father of behaviorism, was still around. Uh, and in my first week of graduate school, we were in William James Hall, which is a 15-story building. And it's, um, it's a big building, and I was just getting to know my way around. And I was on the elevator, and I pushed a button, uh, and I realized that it was the wrong floor. And I, um, I mumbled to myself, whoops, I changed my mind, and I pushed another button, and Skinner was on the elevator. Uh, and he put his arm around me and he said, son, you did not change your mind. You changed your behavior. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was another wake-up call for me. And that's where we came from, right? That's a lot of our institutions from. that were now inherited were built on oh. that kind of foundation. Um, so... Your goal then, your passion has been, you created this, this center for healthy minds that we have as sophisticated a way of analyzing and discussing and nurturing human flourishing, right? The things that make us healthy as we are sophisticated in my field of journalism as well. 
much more sophisticated at analyzing dysfunction and despair. Um, and again, there's a, there's a corollary, a healthy corollary, that in, in education now there's this emerging emphasis on um, social-emotional learning. And I feel like you are right in, on the front lines, on, on this new frontier of science that is helping us understand how and why this kind of intelligence, this kind of learning is as important and relevant as our other kinds of intelligence and learning. So what are, what are, what are you learning? What are we seeing? Well, I would say uh, that really to be a little bit provocative that it's more important than mm. other kinds of learning. And there's actually very good evidence for that. So just to sort of give you uh, a couple of data points here, um, there's a very famous longitudinal study that's being done uh, with a group of people uh, in New Zealand, in Dunedin, New Zealand. Uh, it's what we call a birth cohort. So these are people who've been followed from birth. And they're mm -hmm. now in their late 40s, and they've been intensively studied, a 1,000 people. So we know a fair amount about them. And here's a finding, which is really a cool finding. Given that these individuals have been followed longitudinally, we can look to see what characteristics early in their life are the best predictors of various outcomes later in life. And so one of the key questions that's been asked is whether some of these social and emotional characteristics very early when the kids are aged four and five years are predictors of major adult life outcomes when they're in their early 30s. And here we're talking about stuff that matters. So for example, uh, we uh, are talking about the propensity of individuals to abuse drugs, physical health, uh, financial success, uh, actually measured in real dollars, and um, uh, also uh, antisocial behavior, and one of the indices that has been used is actual adult criminal convictions that are verified in the judicial system. So these are hard-nosed outcomes. And the data show that a child's capacity to exercise self-control when she or he is four and five years of age is a better predictor of all of these outcomes than IQ, grade point average, and standardized test scores all put together once you're above a certain minimum level. Uh, and so these are very, very powerful data in suggesting that some of these social and emotional characteristics are really what matters in terms of predicting these major life outcomes. Mm -hmm. And there's more recent data showing that there's a meta-analysis which was done, which is an analysis of many different studies put together that involved more than 250,000 school children here in the United States. And the data show that kids who are fortunate to participate in social and emotional learning uh, programs do significantly better on a whole range of outcomes it turns out, including standardized test scores, they score an average of 11 points higher on standardized tests. And are you, 
I, I was reading about that that, 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 that that what neuroscience is speculating is that brain circuits that are important, that interact with, for social and emotional learning, interact with brain circuits that are important for cognitive learning. Uh, absolutely. And one of the um, really important insights that is packed in that statement is that the brain does not honor the kind of anachronistic distinction between thought and feeling. Mm. Thought and feeling are absolutely intermingled in the brain. Uh, and so there are no areas of the brain that are exclusively dedicated to one and not the other. There's a lot of interconnectivity. Uh, and so when you are, when, when a child, for example, is subjected to adversity and the adversity gets under the skin, uh, it will impair cognitive function in addition to producing emotional difficulties. Uh, and so these are um, inter intimately interwoven in the brain. Is it, I just I think so much also about how the 20th century, you know, I mean, we wanted to think we could bracket emotion out, you know, out of schools, out of workplaces, out of politics. And we failed, <laughs> at least in politics. <laughs> um, right? And, I mean, and it's kind of the way we wish the world were. Because it would be neater and cleaner and less messy if emotion and intellect weren't intertwined. But there it is. There, there it is, yeah. And, you know, um, uh, there's a very famous psychologist who did work on... Uh, uh, decision-making, and he actually got a Nobel Prize in economics. His name was Herb Simon. And he thought, he, and he worked in the, uh, in the 1960s and 70s, and the way he thought about emotion is that it was an interrupter. It disrupted cognitive function. Okay. Uh, and, um, and we know now that when we think about the really complex decisions in our lives, so for example, if we think about whether we're going to partner with a certain partner if, um, or get married to a certain um, partner, that's the kind of decision uh, that we cannot make based on a cold cognitive calculus. We consult our emotions for making that decision. And if our emotions were disrupted, it will really impair our capacity to make those kinds of decisions. And so this has led to the insight that emotions actually play a really key role. They can be both facilitating of our behavior and cognitive activity, and they can also be disruptors. So they, it, it can go both ways. It's not one way or the other, but they're an intimate part of everything that we do. Mm -hmm. And I think that this must be flowing into, um, I know the California Endowment is doing some uh, wonderful work with understanding trauma as a um, public health issue. And uh, again, this way we've punished behavior in classrooms and understanding, I mean, that, that, that another way to think about it is to actually address the child as a person and help them learn to calm themselves and manage their behavior rather than just treating them as a disciplinary or scholarly problem. Yeah, well, I think that's that's really um, such an important issue, and uh, and how we address those kinds of difficulties 
uh, and the way teachers are respond to those kind of difficulties will have an enormous impact on the brain mm-hmm. uh, and on their expression. And, uh, you know, one of the things I often say is that the very mechanisms in the brain that allow adversity to get under the skin are also the mechanisms that enable awakening. Mm-hmm. They're the same mechanisms. And so we can harness this power of neuroplasticity for the good by um, uh, cultivating certain kinds of virtuous qualities, but neuroplasticity in and of itself is neutral. Mm-hmm. So you, I believe, have taken these ideas into school settings. And, and, and it, again, not just... You, you've actually asked the question, can we cultivate compassion? Do you use the language of kindness and love or those other... Do you, do you use that? I, mean, I think obviously these things are connected, but, but anyway, what, are, what, what's, what happens when you do that? Uh, well, just on the vocabulary, yeah. I was telling Jeff um, before um, we started today that I, I admired their choice of words and uh, the courage, really, that it takes to use the word love. Yeah. Uh, and I, I can tell you that there aren't many scientists particularly neuroscientists who use the word love, but I, I really love the word love. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, I heard, by the way, a, um, so an interview with Stevie Wonder um, just recently, and he was talking about the current political climate and offered another slogan, Make America Love Again, hmm. <laughs> which um, hmm. uh, I thought was very appropriate. Um, I, you know, I think that there are... In my mind, there are some subtle differences among them. When we think about compassion, compassion is the propensity to relieve another person's suffering. Um, uh, And uh, the phrase loving kindness, when it's been used in both the spiritual context as well as in research studies, has been focused on more on the um, wishing that another person be, be happy. Okay. Uh, and so there's slight differences. Mm-hmm. They often go together. I think they're near neighbors, mm-hmm. uh, um, but slightly different. And have you found, I mean, I remember you saying to me years ago that uh, you believe that we are as hardwired to learn compassion as we, as we are hardwired to learn language. Has that, has that borne itself out? Yeah, I'm happy you remember that. It's, um, uh, I, I think the evidence today is even stronger than it was when we spoke about it last. Um, I know that it's hard for people to appreciate when we talk about, um, the, and the phrase we use is innate basic goodness, that humans mm-hmm. come into the world with an innate basic goodness. And people often say, well, how, how can you say that given what we see around us today. Well, the data show that if you look in very, very young infants and you expose infants, for example, to puppets who are engaged in a play scenario together, and you have one puppet that is really a mean son of a bitch uh, and another puppet who is very kind and helpful, and then you give the puppets to babies and see which the babies reach for, 
after they see this scenario. That's one genre of experiment that's been done. Mm -hmm. And the data show that about 95% of infants will reach for the puppet that was kind. Mm -hmm. uh, this is in, at three months of age. And it, you know, th these have been very, very carefully done experiments. So it's not the physical characteristics of the puppet. That's all been carefully controlled and counterbalanced. Uh, it's really due to the way the puppet is behaving in this context. And so these are the kinds of findings that lead us to suggest that we come into the world with this uh, innate propensity. But the reason I, I liken it to language is that we also know that we come into the world with a biological propensity for language. Mm -hmm. But uh, it requires that we be nurtured in a normal linguistic community for yeah. that propensity to be expressed. And there are case studies of feral children who've been raised in the wild. They don't develop normal language. Uh, and so even though there's a biological propensity, uh, it requires this context, mm -hmm. uh, the appropriate context to nurture it. And I think the same is true for kindness. Uh, I think we come into the world with this innate propensity, but for this propensity to be expressed, it requires nurturing. Right, yeah, because we, we, don't, we don't actually learn language. I mean, yes, there's an aspect of being taught language, but it's more just that people do it around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so if we're in a context where people are doing kindness around us, uh, we will osmotically absorb it, and it will be nurtured. And I mean, that, that then has implications for if this is brought into a classroom and that it, it's, that it is also about uh, the teachers really embodying this, not, not just, it's not just a lesson plan. Well, and that's really one of the powerful things. Teachers change students' brains. When teachers interact with students, they are changing the brains of their students, and not just functionally, but actually structurally. And uh, this is not a radical statement because we're changing each other's brains all the time. We know that this occurs in a relationship between a parent and their offspring, uh, and it, it occurs in any kind of sustained interpersonal interaction. Uh, and so... Um, when a teacher embodies these kinds of qualities, uh, it will be imparted to the students in a way that will get under the skin and impact circuits in the brain that we know are important for this. So, yeah, so I want to hear, I do want to, I want to do want you to tell us about the, the work you've been doing in, with children in classrooms about teaching this. I just want to say this reminds me of when, uh, when uh, I think it was actually Sylvia Borstein, it's wonderful Jewish Buddhist teacher who said to me, you know, your children really aren't listening to what you say. They're actually just watching what you do. And uh, that's kind of depressing, right? That's just <laughs> hard. Uh, it's easier and harder. But on the other hand, what it does is it, it gave me permission to say, well, me investing in my spiritual health, in my how I'm changing my brain, what I'm practicing towards a character— is not time I, or energy I'm taking away from my children, but giving to them. And it's, I guess absolutely. it's the same kind of... Uh, absolutely. And mm -hmm. I think that kind of implicit learning that occurs, it's really implicit social learning that occurs through embodied um, 
practice and, and the embodied um, taking on these kinds of characteristics in a really deep embodied way will impact all of those around us. Mm. And so you have actually gone in and your colleagues have gone in to, to create compassionate classrooms. Is that right? Because I don't, I don't know where this is now. This was a few years ago. You were just starting this and it was brand new for anybody to be doing. Yeah, so we've actually published a randomized controlled trial. We really did it quite rigorously. Uh, and we began with preschool kids. We created a curriculum called the Kindness Curriculum for preschool children. And we, by the way, uh, it's available free. Uh, we're distributing it on our website. We also have a Spanish translation, which is available as well. Uh, and it's being used now in lots of different places. Uh, and our experimental research shows that um, kids who are exposed to this curriculum, it's, it's a one-semester curriculum, it's pretty modest in terms of dosage, uh, um, become more altruistic. Uh, so we have hard-nosed measures of pro-social behavior, and what we find is compared to a control group of kids who get a standard curriculum, the kids who go through the kindness curriculum engage in more pro-social behavior. Uh, um, uh, and many other competences improve, including basic mechanisms of attention. Mm. Uh, and so we have really hard-nosed measures of attention that we used, uh, and attention improves. And their regular classroom teachers rate them as being more pro-social and also being better learners after this. And so there's a whole cascade of changes that we saw. Um, and it's, it's really a proof of concept study. It's, it was modest in terms of the number of participants. It was only a few hundred. It really needs to be done on a much larger scale. And I should also mention, sort of in line with what you were saying earlier, Krista, that um, we did a training for the teachers before we brought it into the classroom. So the teachers went through a 10-week training so that they can be embodied um, ambassadors, if mm -hmm. you will, um, of uh, these kinds of practices. And they did the training in the summer before we brought it into the classroom, which we think is a really important ingredient. I was reading, um, I think it was an interview with one of your colleagues who is doing this and um th this kind of does come back to the notion of embodiment but that that this really is also about um helping children or helping ourselves reconnect our bodies with our minds and with how we want with the kinds of people we want to be about the way we physically move through the world it's not an abstraction that that the systems in our brain that support well-being are connected to different organs in our body and to our immune and endocrine systems. And that part of what happens when you're empowering young children to be this way is that they actually feel how these positive qualities like kindness and gratitude feel in their bodies. Which actually, when I think about that, that makes sense. I mean, we, I, you know, we all know what that experience is. This is not just about having an idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so important, really important. Um, and we know that empathy, uh, which is, we think, a necessary prerequisite for kindness and compassion, 
starts with experiencing in your body the emotions that another person may be experiencing, another mm. child may be experiencing, in order to help take the perspective of another. Uh, and, um, uh, and also, this is part of self-awareness, mm -hmm. having a bodily representation of uh, this kind of experience enables us to become more familiar with it. And so we can get back to it. We know what it feels like. Right? We know what it feels and we like. We know when we've lost that compass. Exactly. And so that kind of familiarity is so important because it helps to reinstate it. So I think culturally, uh, and I imagine in science too, the the hesitation people have about words like kindness and compassion and love is also that these, you know, these are soft qualities. And um, that there would be a limit to how they would serve you in the world as it is. Um, is there, but you said a minute ago that the same things that that threaten us, I can't remember exactly the word you used, also create an opening for resilience. Is, mm -hmm. there, is there a connection? Is there a robustness? Is there a muscular strength to kindness and compassion and love as you've seen it cultivated that also translates into resilience in the world as it is and not as we wish it to be? Yeah, uh, super important. Well, resilience, one of the ways that we think about resilience in a kind of hard-nosed research context is resilience is the rapidity with which you recover from adversity. And the rapidity with which you recover from adversity. So if you recover more quickly, um, that's better resilience. And so to paraphrase the bumper sticker, stuff happens. Uh, um, it We can't buffer ourselves. Uh, that's the nature of life. Uh, and so what, what really is important is how we relate to these challenges. Uh, and if we can come back to baseline more quickly, uh, that is really powerful. And not only does it have consequences for our psychological well-being, it also has consequences for our physical health. Mm -hmm. um, and in other parts of the research that we do, in older people who are in their seventh and eighth and ninth decades of life, uh, it turns out that this quality is a really important predictor of mortality. Uh, that is the rapidity with which you recover from adversity, taking into account all other kinds of medical factors. But um, this capacity is um, one of the most powerful predictors of mortality. Uh, and so um, we think it's really important. And so cultivating the qualities which will promote resilience, yes, in some sense it's soft, but in another sense you couldn't get much harder um, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what really matters. Mm -hmm. um, so setting aside the way you have to present the research to, uh, you know, to validate your studies... I'm just curious about when you've been in classrooms, when you've worked with children, you know, what do parents and what do teachers say to you about what they observe, how this shifts things for, for individual children and for the group experience? 
Well, um, many different stories come to mind. Um, one is uh, a boy by the name of Will, who we really got to know well, who um, was a kid in a preschool that we were working in. And uh, he was an adopted child from Guatemala, living with parents in Madison, Wisconsin. And um, he had a phobia that really was um, interfering with his life. He, he was intensely phobic of elevators. Mm. And he had an experience at some point in his past of getting stuck on an elevator by himself. Um, uh, and he had all, other manifestations of anxiety. Um, uh, and it was remarkable to see him go through one semester of this kindness curriculum. And I should say that it's more than just the kindness curriculum. Um, it also involves uh, exercises in mindful awareness. Um, we do, for example, uh, an exercise where we ring a bell and we ask the kids to pay very close attention to the sound uh, when the bell is rung. And as soon as they can no longer hear the bell, they should raise their hands. And you can do this, and for the 10 or 12 seconds that the bell is audible, the, you can see 20 kids being incredibly still, and then they'll jump up, and they love that. They can, they can taste the quality of quiet in their bodies. And Will taste, taste, had that taste for the first time, I think, in his life. Mm -hmm. um, and his parents... Um, who we got to know through this, really talked about this remarkable transformation. And this was the beginning of a huge change for him. And we're still, he's now in eighth grade, I think, and we're still in touch with him and his parents. And uh, uh, it's, it, that's really been a remarkable kind of relationship. And another, another really um, wonderful anecdote, Madison is uh, a relatively small community. The population of Madison is about 350,000. Um, I was in a grocery store not too long ago, and I ran into a person I had not met before. And she came over and introduced herself to me, and she is the mother of a child who is going through one of our programs in the public school. And um, she just asked if I can help provide her with some resources because she's learned so much from her kid that she would like to, to <laughs> do this herself. All right. um, uh, and so uh, uh, it's really quite fantastic to see that kind of transmission mm -hmm. occurring. Um, so this would be a good time to, um, if you have written a question um, or you'd like to do it quickly and then... Lily will, somebody will start collecting them in just a minute. Okay. Uh, so just another question or two before we move to that. Uh, let's see, so much we could talk about. Well, I want to talk about mindfulness because that is, a, a, would you say a, is a primary tool or the primary tool in, in the work as you've done it is? I would say, you know, it's a primary tool. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, we... Uh, are one of the reasons, well, 
I should back up and say we, we don't use that word that much. Okay. Um, I, we certainly use it, but we don't use it that much. It has um, been so hyped uh, mm-hmm. in, um, in the media, in education, in all kinds of um, places that uh, it is, I think, um, losing its significance. I remember, uh, I'll just share a little story. Um, the Dalai Lama is now 83. When he was 80, there were a whole series of birthday parties for him. And I was lucky enough to go to one uh, in New York City uh, for his 80th birthday. And it was very small. It was about 30 people and many very prominent people. Um, one of your United States senators with us was there, Diane Feinstein, um, and uh, a bunch of other well-known people. And... Um, And I was with the Dalai Lama going out of this. um, And one of the things that was remarkable is the kitchen staff. uh, This was held at a hotel in New York, New York City. The kitchen staff was sort of lined up um, to greet him on his way out. And he stopped and talked to every one of these people in a way that was absolutely no different, pardon me for saying this, than the way he talked to Senator Feinstein. Um, and it was, he treated every single person in the same way with utter respect um, and just holding them as mm-hmm. a human being. And soon after that, someone asked me about a uh, definition of mindfulness. And I said, mindfulness is remembering to bring that quality every single moment to, to be caring and loving in the way he is at every single moment mm-hmm. and not to forget, not to lose it. Um, and he, Someone like the Dalai Lama exemplifies that uh, in a way that is so powerful. Uh, But that kind of quality of mindfulness, I think we have lost. It's become uh, more austere. uh, And um, some of its nuanced flavor, I think, has been lost. So... So it's it is important, but it's I wouldn't say it's the most important ingredient. Okay. Um... Um, and meditation would be, um, I mean, I think of meditation as a spiritual technology. And in fact, all of our religious traditions have contemplative technologies like that. Buddhism has Absolutely. cultivated it, especially actively over in the last, you know, several hundred years in particular and kind of offered it up um, to ordinary people in a way that the other traditions didn't. Um, but it seems, but I mean, do you use, like, is and I, know, I mean, you talk about self-awareness. I mean, do you do you bring meditation techniques into the classroom? Is that we do? We don't we don't call them meditation, um, but we do bring them into okay. the classroom. Uh, when I talk to parents and um, um, certain school officials about it, we talk about it as mental exercises to cultivate self-regulation, to cultivate. Um, the regulation of attention, the regulation of emotion. So far, I haven't found a single parent who didn't want to help their child better regulate their attention and better regulate their emotions. Uh, And so framed in this way, I think we can make it Mm -hmm. quite universal. I actually love that language that's in Buddhist tradition of mental hygiene. Is so... That is such a wonderful phrase, right? That, that you're right. That is something we could all use. <laughs> I think we really can. And you know, when humans came on this planet, we didn't we didn't evolve and immediately start 
doing things like brushing our teeth. Um, we all brush our teeth several times a day. Virtually every human being on the planet does that. It's a kind of personal physical hygiene. And we envision a time when we will recognize that our minds are just as important as our teeth. And uh, I, I suspect there are no dentists in the audience, probably more important than our teeth. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, uh, and so doing simple mental exercise in the same way that we do physical exercise, I think will be recognized as really an urgent public health need. Mm. Mm. Uh, maybe just before we open for questions, um, I know that that teenagers, because we've mostly been talking about young children, and uh, you have you have t spoken a lot. I don't know how much you've ventured into this um, with your research, but that that we really need to also grapple with that this the, the this these insights don't just apply to three and four year olds who, whose minds are more malleable. Um, and you actually said. Um, we have a moral obligation to explore how we bring this science to, to teenagers. Yeah, and teenagers are super important. Um, there are three critical sensitive periods in, um, in early life. One is at the time of birth. The other is around the onset of schooling between the ages of roughly four and seven. And the third is adolescence. Uh, and um, one of the things that's happened is today the onset of puberty is occurring significantly earlier than at any other point in human history. And yet the regulatory systems in the brain are maturing at their own rate. That has not changed. And so we have the longest period ever in human history uh, a gap between the onset of puberty and the development of these regulatory systems in the brain. Um, if you look over the course of the last 100 years, 100 years ago, um, the age of onset of puberty in Western countries was around age 16. So th this has been a remarkable change in the course of 100 years. It's quite frightening. And the cause of it is very complicated, and it's probably due to many different factors, including dietary factors, all kinds of things. Um, but for whatever reason, it is occurring. And so it leads to um, uh, the kind of crisis, I think, that we have today, but also an opportunity. And I think that we can harness that opportunity by introducing age-appropriate mental exercises. We just published a paper uh, um, that, uh, a scientific paper which we did with funding from the Gates Foundation to develop a video game for teenagers to cultivate kindness and empathy. Mm. Um, and we actually looked, we did a randomized controlled trial and looked at the impact on these kids' brains as well as their behavior. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the answer, but it is, um, <laughs> I think we need to think outside the box. Mm -hmm. And since kids have enormous amounts of screen time anyway, we reasoned 
that we should at least try and see whether we can use this medium. And um, uh, uh, under the um, administration of President Obama, I uh, actually co-organized a White House meeting on games, neuroscience, and well-being, mm. where we had game um, executives from uh, the top gaming companies in the country. And basically, we're showcasing evidence to show the excuse me, the deleterious impact of violent video games and raising the possibility that it may be possible to develop games that kids actually will enjoy playing that don't involve shooting other people. Uh, and so I think that this is something we need to explore, but there are also many other strategies we need to explore. Um, and you, when you say mental exercise, and obviously, yeah, outside the box, video games is, a, is another idea, but even, you know, with the teeth brushing analogy. I mean, when you started out at the invitation of the Dalai Lama, you, you studied the brains of what they called Olympic meditators, people who'd studied 10,000 or who'd meditated 10, 20, 30, 40,000 hours in their lives. But, but I believe um, that you're also seeing the evidence now that this can be, that, 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 that just these kinds of techniques and practices for a few minutes a day can are helpful, have an effect, absolutely. but it doesn't have to be 10,000 hours. Uh, uh, absolutely. We actually published a, a study, again, a rigorous randomized controlled trial with teenagers looking at the effects of a simple compassion practice that was delivered over the internet. Mm. Uh, and it was a total of seven hours of practice over the course of two weeks and we actually found that it led to measurable changes in their brain and measurable changes in prosocial behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it doesn't take much to produce these kinds of changes. It doesn't mean that these changes will stick, mm -hmm. um, but it's... I don't think they will stick unless we continue to practice. Well, like if you stop brushing your teeth, you get cavities, right? Yeah. Or, you know, if you stop going to the gym, if you've been working yeah. out. It, so we, yeah. we all know this. But it, it, we, we, the, the evidence, though, is very, um, I think, optimistic and hopeful in showing that it doesn't take much to, to start this beneficial process mm. going. Okay. Let's do some. Let's open this up to the room. Thank you so much, Kristen Ritchie. Let's let's give them a hand for what they've shared with us so far. So we have some uh, questions from our team here. If adversity impacts a child's cognitive functioning, can this be remediated and repaired in some way with some kind of therapy or intervention? In other words, can trauma be fixed? Yeah, it's a really wonderful question. Uh, I would say that um, we don't know what the constraints on human plasticity are at this point in time. Um, we, uh, uh, we do know that the brain is plastic. I think that if I were pushed to really more directly respond to the question, I would say, yes, I think that the change can occur, but we don't know what the the extent of the change is. We ourselves have done some research on 
kids who were raised in Eastern European orphanages and who were then adopted into middle-class families in the United States, uh, and I can tell you their brains look different um, structurally. And this is when the kids were um, early in their early teens. They were in the orphanages for the first few years of life. Um, uh, so they still showed, if you will, scarring in their brain um, when they were teens. We don't know the extent to which these changes can be reversed. But I have the conviction also that we haven't tried um, with sufficiently intensive interventions. Uh, I think that uh, the kind of um, trauma that some children have unfortunately been exposed to may require much more intensive interventions than we have been accustomed to exploring, but I think that we need to um, really explore them as we go forward in the future. Thank you very much. Um, on a practical note, one of our uh, team writes, what is a key practice one should do daily with high school sophomores? <laughs> I'm trying to think back to when my kids were high school sophomores. Um, you know, I think that uh, um, there are simple things that we can do to remind ourselves uh, to be grateful uh, of the, the preciousness of um, what we have been given. Um, and I think that any kind of strategy to uh, help a teenager appreciate the, um, uh, the things that she or he has in their lives um, uh, would be really very, very helpful. Uh, you know, taking a moment uh, to do that and, and, you know, if they can write them down, uh, write down one or two things they're grateful for at the end of each day, I think that can be even more helpful. So things of that sort, I think, can be enormously beneficial. Thank you so much. Um, another question is this. Uh, can you say more about how your work is benefiting students on the autistic spectrum? Well, the, the work that we've done in autism is very basic research to try to figure out really what's happening um, uh, uh, with certain subgroups of children with autism. Uh, and so we've been particularly interested in uh, one of the primary symptoms of autism, which is gaze aversion. Uh, and it turns out that you can see this in many cases very early in life, way before kids get a diagnosis of autism. You can see this in the first six months of life, um, uh, where they will avert their gaze in response to a face, even, um, uh, even their, their parents' face. Uh, uh, and so uh, we've been very interested in what the neural basis of those variations might be. And then uh, once we learn more about that in developing certain kinds of training strategies to help children with, with autism to um, process social information uh, in a way which was 
less likely to lead to gaze aversion. And, and so one, one of the problems when they avert their gaze is they're losing a lot of social information. And so they don't, they, they, they're not um, uh, benefiting from all the social cues that are available to other children. Uh, uh, and so um, this is very experimental work at this point. Um, and, uh, um, but though that's a flavor of what we've been doing. Um, what do you see in terms of public education priorities uh, in reference to this social, emotional, and mental health? Do you see a change in priorities, a greater responsiveness to these issues in public education? And, and would you comment on this? Yeah, I believe now there are, um, I think, 12 or 13 states in the United States where it's legally mandated that children receive social and emotional curricula at every grade level from K through 12. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, so that's been a, an enormous um, victory in many ways. And many other states have less... Um, uh, um, formal language about that, but in some other ways encourage it. Uh, uh, and there is increasing evidence to suggest the value of social-emotional learning um, uh, for not just the social and emotional behavior of children, but for their cognitive abilities as well. One of the um, capacities which social-emotional strategies train is attention. And, you know, William James, one of my heroes, the first really great American psychologist, wrote a two-volume tome in 1890 called The Principles of Psychology. And he has a chapter in this book on attention. And he said in this chapter, and this is a quote, he said, the faculty of voluntarily bringing back a wandering attention over and over again is the very root of judgment character, and will. And he went on to say that an education which should improve this faculty would be the education par excellence. And the the and par excellence was italicized in the original William James. Now, this is so important because if a child is not attending to information that she or he is presented with, it's going to severely compromise their ability to learn. Uh, and so attention is a building block for everything else. And the fact that we haven't paid attention to attention is, uh, is, is just, it's, it's incomprehensible to me as a neuroscientist. Just incomprehensible. Uh, and fortunately, I think we're now beginning to see that this is something really significant. And we know from a lot of research studies that attention can be trained. We're not all going to become attentional athletes, um, but uh, everyone can improve his or her attention. And one of the, the, the sad facts is, and there's very good evidence to show this, that in addition to having a fiscal deficit in this country, we have an attention deficit. And I'm not talking just about individuals who've earned a diagnosis. But if we're honest with ourselves, we all are suffering 
from an intentional dysfunction. And the data show that if you look at cohorts of kids today and you compare them to kids 50 years ago on the same standardized measures of attention, kids today are performing worse. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that we need to address this. And we do have the tools, I think, to be able to. And the strategies that are included in many social and emotional learning curricula include this. This is one of these places where I feel like our technologies have brought us to this extreme, uh, like to, to, to have to face the problem that our attention can be hijacked. And it also, as you, this is like you said early on, it, it becomes a moment where awakening becomes possible mm -hmm. too. Yes, uh, absolutely. That's the glass half full mm -hmm. answer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One more question. And um, this kind of follows along um, the, the remarks that you were making just now. So you've mentioned some educational practices that can be used. Could you say a little bit more about educational practices that can be used to encourage student attention, student self-control um, that you have found successful in classrooms or in schools? Well, uh, there are very simple strategies that um, we have used and this really goes back to Krista's question about mindfulness. Um, uh, simple, uh, you know, in, in the research studies that have been done of simple mindfulness practices, a lot of these mindfulness practices involve paying attention to your body, to your breath. And, you know, when we're really honest about it, th these... Um, objects of focus are actually not that interesting. Um, but if we can learn to pay attention to something that's not that interesting, um, it can really help strengthen our attention. Our attention tends to be hijacked by salient stimuli in our environment. Uh, our attention is stimulus-driven, it's pulled, it's grabbed. Um, the invitation here is that we can actually be the rudder of our own mind, if you will, and steer it, direct it where we would like it to be directed um, by strengthening our capacity to voluntarily deploy our attention. So if we, and you, kids can learn to do this very simply. Uh, we start in preschool classrooms with, where we have kids lying on the floor and we put a little stone on their belly and simply instruct them to pay attention to the stone as it goes up and down as they're breathing. Um, and this is a very simple kind of strategy that research shows changes brain circuits of attention and leads to improvements on standardized objective measures of attention. Uh, and so one of the things that children learn is that they can deploy these strategies during the day as a way to help them calm themselves, to regulate themselves. So if they, if some, uh, um, something comes up and they get into an argument with a peer, they can actually um, pay attention to what's going on in their body rather than getting swept up in the immediacy of the emotions. And in that way, they can both strengthen their attention and they can regulate their emotions. Uh, and so these are really simple kinds of things that can be done 
um, but they need to be done repeatedly. Uh, and one of the important messages that we often convey is that doing this for short amounts of time, many times a day, is really helpful. Um, and it could really be short. It could be 15, 20 seconds. Um, but to do it in a repeated way so that children become more familiar with what the qualities are that are associated with this kind of calm attention. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Well, let me just pick up on that. So are there... Um I'm sure there's a whole an, an array of exercises, and then there must be things for 12-year-olds as Absolutely. well. Is, are there is there a place you would point? Like I know the University of Virginia is doing a lot of work in schools. Are there places to look for exercises? Yeah, actually, um, the, one of the the University of Virginia is one place, and the um, person there is. Um, Patricia Jennings. And is it the Center for Contemplative, or is that something else? Yeah, no, there's yeah, a Center something. for Contemplative Studies yes. there where they're doing this kind of research. Um, there's a woman uh, at Penn State by the name of Trish Broderick who has published a curriculum called Learn to Breathe, mm -hmm. uh, and it is a curriculum for older children, mm -hmm. uh, and it is um, one of the better curricula out there that I know of that's been empirically studied and um, there are some very um, um, positive research findings in, in the scientific literature with her curriculum. And so I, I would uh, strongly recommend that and all the materials are readily available. Mm -hmm. um, I once heard you say that one of the things you were seeing is that it was possible to shrink the amygdala. Is that true? Is that happening? <laughs> well, it's complicated. Okay. Uh, um, there are findings which show that uh, if you engage in simple kinds of mindfulness practice for as short as eight weeks, um, and uh, you show over the course of that time a significant reduction in uh, the, your perceived stress. So this is uh, a measure of um, sort of subjective stress. Yeah. Um, it, it turns out that uh, you for, that there are findings which show that people who go through this kind of training and show this reduction in perceived stress, show a shrinkage of their amygdala. Uh, now, that's one study. Uh, I, you know, um, would be cautious about that. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, not to say that these kinds of structural changes don't occur, but um, one of the things that we're finding is that there's a lot of variability in how people respond to these sorts of things. And one of the messages that I often convey is that one size does not fit all. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, sometimes people ask me, well, what's, what is the best form of practice that I should do? And I'll often say, the very best form of practice that you can do is that form of practice that you do. Whatever that is, so that and but but practice is really important, um, and so 
the regularity of practice is something that that really can't be overestimated. I so mean, that's whatever super you do important. that helps you get settled inside your body, that helps you start to breathe. I remember my daughter was a teenager and shoot when I would be yelling or something and she'd say, Mom, breathe, which was so <laughs> annoying <laughs> because I knew she was right. <laughs> But I mean, this is where I think what we're talking about is, you know, it's intimate. We're talking about individuals knowing how to calm, but it's civilizational work. And, you know, that because there's so much, uh, there's, I, I'm just so attentive to the fact that the anger that's out on the surface of our life together all around on every side is, is how fear shows itself in public but we don't deal with the fear. I mean, what you're talking about and like the amygdala, even being able to influence that, I mean, that would be a huge step in the growth of our species. But, but it, maybe it doesn't have to be the fight or flight reflect, you know, that these places in our brain shrinking. Yeah, I mean, and fear we know really contracts awareness. It, uh, um, it, 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 uh, it puts blinders on people in a very real way. Um, the, the, the reason I'm being so cautious about the amygdala, it turns out that there's a, it's really complicated. The amygdala basically is this very small um, structure that's buried in the medial part of our temporal lobe. The temporal lobe is on the side of our head, and it folds in like this. And right in the front part of the amygdala, we, uh, of the temporal lobe, in each person we have an amygdala on each side. Right. And the amygdala is really there to mark salience. It's not about fear, it's about salience. What does that mean? Stuff Marks. that's important. And it could be positive things too. Okay. It turns out, uh, just to throw a wrench in this yeah. story. Yeah, good, okay. Uh, um, uh, there's a woman uh, at George Washington University, a neuroscientist, does some wonderful work by the name of Abby Marsh. Um, and she's been studying a group of people that she calls extreme altruists. And the way she defines them are these are people who have donated a kidney to an unrelated person. Uh, and so that's her... Or the equivalent. I'm no, no actually, that's exactly what that's, they've that's done. That's exactly okay. what they've done. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, yeah. this is science, right? <laughs> uh, this is science, right. So she's recruited a group of people who've donated a kidney to an unrelated individual okay. nationally. And she put them in the brain scanner. They have enlarged amygdalas. And we think of that as a fight or flight. So the way I think about it is these are people who are so attentive to other people's suffering. They, they register other people's suffering um, really strongly. Uh -huh. And some of them, not all of them, with, but some of them, because of other factors in their life, are motivated to actually help. And so they could turn that into compassion. Okay. Um, so uh, having a small or large amygdala, you know, could be... It's not necessarily good or bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's that's why it's much more complicated. Okay. Uh, you know, we haven't used the word love all that much, and I and I think that gets back to 
what we've touched on here, that we don't really know how to use that word in respectable circles. Um, it's, almost, it's almost like a corollary to that, uh, the idea that, like we, like, that we're so much more sophisticated about dysfunction. I mean, I think we all know the devastating effects of the absence of love, uh, but we, and yet we don't know how to talk about, about practicing love or about how could that work as a public value. Um, I'm just curious, um, and I think it's, and it sounds like what you said is that it would be kind of suspect if you said, I'm going to do a science about love. Well, you know, and I, I actually think um, that this is going to be the next frontier mm. for, uh, for science and for neuroscience. And I, I'm, you know, uh, I'm not afraid to speak about love. I think that... Um, the way I think about it is that love is a quality which um, obliterates certain kinds of boundaries. Uh, and um, uh, it is uh, something that particularly uh, eliminates or at least minimizes in-group, out-group kinds of boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, uh, and so I think that it uh, certainly will be associated with pervasive differences in the brain um, and uh, is really something that needs to be studied. And just as we, we think of compassion, the, the, as the Dalai Lama uses this word, he talks about biased and unbiased compassion. Biased compassion is compassion toward your in-group. Uh, unbiased compassion is compassion toward all beings. And I think the same is true of love. There's biased love and there's unbiased love. And um, the cultivation of unbiased love is really challenging. Um, and, uh, uh, and that's where I think the next frontier is. And I think that some of the practices that we've been talking about really are about the cultivation of this kind of unbiased love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And kind of releasing that word from its too narrow and flimsy associations with just romance or eros. Yeah, and I, I think that they do need to be released from that, but I also think that they are embodied. Yeah. Uh, it is not um, simply uh, a kind of um, cognitive stance. Right, right. It is a, um, it's a stance with your whole being. Mm-hmm. Um, that includes your body. Mm-hmm. Which I think is the problem with tolerance. It hasn't been big enough, and it's completely cerebral. Yes, exactly. And if it's, if it's just cerebral, it will never be genuine. Mm-hmm. It just... Um, uh, there, there will there'll be a disparity between what we espouse cerebrally, cognitively, and what our bodies are saying. Mm-hmm. And we know this with research on implicit bias. You know, you can sit a person down and give them a questionnaire, and on the questionnaire they tell you that they have absolutely no bias towards such and such group. And yet, if you actually measure their body, their body is telling you something different. Mm-hmm. And so the embodied nature of love uh, would mean that this, not only that it would make that connection between 
the desire of what we want to be or believe and how we are, but also that it would change our brains, right? That it would reinforce. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the communication goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read somewhere that you're working now. Oh, I want to ask you this. I feel like the field, the frontier you've been on is is about the nature of the human mind. And I'm just so curious about how your definition or understanding has evolved about what the mind is, which is also a question about what we are, in part. Uh, I love your questions, Krista. Um, <laughs> you know, it's my... my, um, my Understanding has certainly evolved, and also I would say my um, willingness to um, sort of be out there and uh, um, state what, what I really feel about this and what I really believe. So if you go on the, the MIT, MIT has a Department of Brain and Cognitive Science, which is a very, very famous department with some really amazing scientists, including... Uh, a Nobel laureate. Um, it's a, an amazing department. And if you go on their website, it says, the mind is what the brain does. <laughs> uh, now that is, it's unconscionable <laughs> that such smart people are saying something that's so obviously, you know, it's just crazy wrong. Um, and even if we, we adopt strictly conventional kind of materialistic premises. So, for example, we know that the gut modulates the mind in, in pervasive ways. Uh, there's an, an there's a extensive brain-gut connection. Um, I was listening to a talk not too long ago where uh, a Stanford biologist made the provocative claim, which I think is very, very important. He said, do you know what the most powerful pharmaceutical is on the planet? Can anyone guess what the most powerful pharmaceutical is on the planet? Food. <laughs> chocolate, Food. somebody said. Food. I like. Chocolate is mine. Food is the most powerful yeah. pharmaceutical. Because... It will impact our gut, which just has enormous influence over our brain. And so to say that the mind is just in the brain, is it just ignores the body. Um, and then there are much more complicated and much more difficult sort of challenges. Uh, and this is something that I've been pushed on by the Dalai Lama a lot. Um, and so... In some scientific circles, he'll say, well, there are certain things that are Buddhist business, and we'll just keep it to the side. Um, and uh, I've been very fortunate that he's sort of um, allowed some of the Buddhist business to infiltrate um, into our scientific discourse. And one of them is really about, what the, nat about the nature of the mind. And, uh, uh, and so we are... Um, really interested in this. And, and let me just give you one example of a crazy research study that I'm involved with that I don't talk about publicly very much. Okay. Um, but um, since the Dalai Lama talks about it um, publicly, uh, I feel like the 
you know, the, the beans have been spilled, so we, we, need to, we can talk about it. We are studying dying people um, now uh, who are in the process of dying and who actually um, are beyond death, that is, who, um, who uh, uh, have met the conventional Western criteria for death. Um, uh, and yet and there seems to be things that are still going on, so to speak. So you're like imaging their brains or what, what are you, how are you studying them? Well, so um, we are, we have a research project going on now in India. Um, we have a data collection facility that we've established in the south of India and also one in the north of India. Uh, and there is a state that um, is said to occur among certain people, um, and it really depends on their qualities as in their life as to whether they go into this state when they die. But it is a state that is called Tukdam in Tibetan, and it means the clear light state. And it is a state where uh, they are dead, according to Western conventional definitions of death, and yet their body doesn't seem to decompose. Uh, and um, according to the tradition, there is the maintenance of some residual quality of awareness that's still present, even though the heart has stopped beating and brain activity is, is showing what we call flat line. Um, uh, and so, uh, um, so this raises, of course, huge numbers of questions about what might be going on. This is well described in the contemplative traditions of um, Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, and so the Dalai Lama, uh, about 10 years ago, asked me if I would please study this. Um, uh, and he thought that it was really important to study. So that is, in fact, what we're doing. We have a um, scientist in our center who spends six or seven months each year in India supervising a team of Tibetan doctors who are doing the data collection on the ground. Um, and uh, there's not much I can tell you about this, not because I'm being coy, um, but simply because we're at a very early stage. The one thing I can say is that um, in among these individuals, their bodies, in fact, do not decompose until the state putatively ends. And in certain cases, in one case, for example, we had a practitioner who had been dead for 17 days in tropical conditions in the south of India with no air conditioning, and his body was preserved um, without decomposing for 17 days. And then when the tukdam ended, the body just immediately began to decompose. But for these 17 days, it was fresh, uh, did not smell um, so we're trying to take some measurements during this period. Now, one of the things that's happened in the interim since we started this is, for a variety of reasons, other kinds of scientists have gotten interested in these kinds of questions, one of them being transplant surgeons. Hmm. Uh, and so there now is um, a few scientific papers published um, 
on the following. It, it turns out that, um, and this is something I hadn't known before, when an organ is transplanted, the rate at which the, the organ grows tumors is much higher than you'd expect by, by chance, by the normal probabilities. And um, it suggests that there are changes that are occurring in the organ after, the, after death. Um, uh, 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 and so this has actually been studied uh, by looking at gene expression changes in the body after the conventional definition of death. And there are papers showing that there are gene expression changes which are occurring for at least 48 hours. Um, and these are, this is not fringe science. This stuff is published mm -hmm. in, in the, the best scientific... So you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that that should be possible because the brain is dead. Is that right? Yeah, that, that metabolism... So there's some kind of life force... Something is going on. That's bigger than what we know. Right. Something is happening that we do not know, mm -hmm. uh, which is occurring for at least some period of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there are even studies that have been done in animals. This is, and we can put aside the ethical implications of this. It's not our own research, but other scientists have done this, where uh, animals have been experimentally sacrificed in the laboratory, and after they're dead, there is measurable brain activity that they've recorded for at least 30 to 45 minutes after death. So these animals are dead. Um, uh, and yet, uh, something is occurring. And so, uh, all we can say is that th this is um, what I would say is a call for humility. Um, for humility and uh, uh, acknowledging that we simply don't know. And, um, and so, uh, this was a long-winded answer, but... Um, uh, uh, it is simply to say that we really don't know is the most honest answer that what I can give. What the mind is. I sometimes think that people will look back at us, perhaps not in the too distant future, and look at the way we use the language of body, mind, spirit. Like these are three separate things. And this has implications, of course, for our formation of our children and education. The way we look at like four humors in the body, right? I mean, do you think of body, mind, spirit as, I mean, it's separate. Does that phrase even make sense anymore, given what we're learning? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think that um, uh, I was uh, at a meeting not too long ago where there's a very, very famous, one of the most famous living neuroscientists. And another person who was there is Mathieu Ricard, who you know, mm -hmm. who is a uh, Tibetan Buddhist monk who also has a PhD in molecular biology. And at this meeting, Mathieu was regaling us with stories of um, great meditation masters who were doing very unusual things that stretched our understanding of reality. Uh, and uh, this neuroscientist said, Mathieu, if half the things you just told us are true, we're in big trouble. Uh, that's a direct quote. Uh, and what he meant by that is that our conventional accounts of reality uh, are going to need to be significantly revised. Mm -hmm. and, and this is where I think, you know, just going back to humility, humility is not something that a lot of modern 
particularly biological scientists exhibit. Um, and yet, uh, I think if we're honest, this is really the stance we need to adopt and to simply be honest about what we don't know. Well, I don't think, you know, um, humility is not necessarily where I thought we would end, but it absolutely makes sense in the context of a discussion about love and kindness and raising new humans in the world. Um, so thank you so much, Richard Davidson, and thank you to the Orange County Department of Education for having us. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs>